we're in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Um, and I want to kind of pick up, although we covered some of this, um, pick up with verse uh, 5 and then uh, kind of uh, speedily go through that and look at um, what happens as a result of this. The context, of course, of chapter 4 is what happened in chapter 3 when Peter and John were on Temple Mount and a man who had been there uh, from birth, presumably, um, was healed. And Peter said, I don't have any gold or silver to give you, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he went uh, through the Temple Mount, uh, you know, leaping and, 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 and walking and praising the Lord. And, and it was an incredible miracle. It was a, and it, when we were talking about it, I called it this, which I think is the right way to say it. It was a messianic miracle to prove again that Jesus is the Messiah. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, um, they, that is Peter and John, are appearing before the council, before uh, the Sadducees and the chief priest and the, the captain of the temple, and they arrest them. And they're held over for the next day to trial. And verse 5 picks up with the actual, I'm going to say in quotations a trial, but that's in effect what sort of is going on. It's an interrogation. And the next day, the rulers, that is used as a title for the senior priests, the elders. These are more of like the civil leaders or the civic leaders of Israel, kind of over the tribes and various clans. And then the scribes. These are the ones who studied and interpreted and copied the law, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander. Annas is the high priest only in tradition. He is not the functioning high priest. He had been dismissed earlier, but he's still the power behind. It is his son-in-law, Caiaphas, that is the acting high priest. And then John and Alexander are the biological sons of Annas. We know nothing of Alexander. We do know uh, some things about John. Now, the reason I think Luke includes these names is these guys, Peter and John, are appearing before the most powerful people in first century Judaism. I mean, these aren't military people. These aren't financial people. These are the religious power. This is the religious powerhouse of Israel. And all who were of the high priestly family, and when they had them in their midst, most expositors understand that they were in a circle. And in the middle of that circle was Peter and John. And this is what they asked them. By what power or by what name did you do this? And the pronoun this is referring back to all that had happened in chapter 3. In other words, it's, it's fascinating to me. It really is. A miracle has occurred. This guy's running around Temple Mount. That a miracle occurred is indisputable. They want to know. By what power and by what name did you do this? Which is, to me, I didn't, don't think they thought this through because they are going to hear them say, Jesus. <laughs> but, you know, that's not, the, that's not the point, I suppose. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, now again, when you think about it, these guys are either really stupid or they are expecting them to answer that way because there's no other way they're going to answer. But they answer by Jesus Christ. Now notice what Peter does, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. They're the two seminal events of Christ's ministry. And by him, this man is standing before you well. So, I mean, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> the, these leaders have given Peter an opportunity to say once again what they've been saying for weeks. Jesus did this. It's his name that is the source of the power and authority that explains this miracle. Woody, did you? Uh, yeah, I, I somewhere I read that that man had been crippled for 40 some years. You probably know where it's at. I don't. Well, I think it's earlier in, in chapter 3. Okay. It, it'll tell you. So that was really, uh, you know, that was really well, eye Oh, yeah. And as we had commented, uh, because he was at the beautiful gate, that major eastern gate, I think, the people would have seen him day after day after day after day because he was asking for alms, which was often the way um, people supported themselves uh, that were ill or, or paralyzed or whatever. And by the way, in the Middle East today, I've been there many, many times, you still see that. You see people there, for whatever reason, uh, they are just beggars. And, you know, they're, they have a little cup and they're just asking you to, to uh, help them. And that giving of alms is very much a part of Middle Eastern culture. Now, verse 11 is quite an instructive verse. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Now, that's, that's language that is really out of the Old Testament. That's that kind of a reference. It's in the Psalms. It's in Isaiah. But then Peter does something. He has become the cornerstone. Now, Joel, this is for me to use, right? Yes. Now, the first reference, the first reference is the stone, meaning the foundation stone. Uh, you, you know what the foundation stone of a building is, you know, today. We have to make a big ceremony of it. And the building is getting started, and you put memorabilia in it that somebody's supposed to open 100 years from now or whatever. Okay, you rejected that, but he has now become the cornerstone. And the language that Peter is using, because this was very common in the Greco-Roman world, even in the Middle East at this time, the major engineering feat of Roman architecture was the arch. And I, I, I think all of you know what I mean by that. Um, this, everything about Roman architecture reflected this. You, would, you could build from the basic arch a dome, um, a, a huge hallway, and, a, and the most important stone in the arch is this. It's called the peak stone, the cornerstone. So what Peter is doing is you rejected him as the foundation, He's now become the keystone, the cornerstone, the peak stone. The keystone of the whole structure. 
And so it's, a, it's kind of a play on architectural language that is powerful when you understand what he's saying. And what you, know, you guys rejected as the foundation stone has now become the peak stone of the whole structure God's building. And then he adds, and this is, this is an uncomfortable statement in 2018 with our postmodern pluralistic culture. But it's, there's no ambiguity in what Peter's saying. And there's salvation in no one else. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, if I, if I use the word exclusive, do you, do you know what I mean by that? So, put it uh, uh, another way. There are not multiple ways to God. There's one way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So Peter, I mean, it's fascinating, this discussion and dialogue with these most powerful people religiously in first century Judaism have given him an opportunity to say something that is foundational to the church. And that is Jesus is not only the foundation stone, he's the keystone, the peak stone, the cornerstone. And it is his name and his name alone that brings salvation. Um, it looks like that the keystone could almost be symbolically joining the Old Testament and the New Testament together if you look at it from a pictorial uh, point where it's, they both come up and he is the keystone in that. And then, yeah, you're distinguishing the keystone from the cornerstone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cornerstone is the foundational stone upon which that building mm-hmm. begins its mm-hmm. ascent. Right? Exactly. I mean, what Peter is saying, he is the foundation stone, whether you recognize it or not, but he's become now the keystone, too. So, I mean, it's, it's a play on architectural words and language that um, I think is quite powerful, actually. I really, I really think it's a neat play on these words that helps us to understand whether you got accepted it or not. He is the foundation stone. He's become the keystone. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that is true. How did we move from the cornerstone to the keystone? Is that the translation from the Hebrew, or how did you come up with that? Well, I didn't come up with it. It's, it, is, it, is the, it is the terms that are used there uh, by Peter. So the cornerstone means the keystone? Yeah, peak stone. That it's. It, I thought that it's just a cornerstone, like it's on the side. Right? No, no, no. It, 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 a cornerstone, can, it can be translated peak stone or keystone. See, it's moving architecture, it's moving from the foundation to the structure God's building. He's not only the foundation, you rejected that, but he's not only the foundation, he has become the cornerstone. I mean, the language, the verb is become. He has become something else. He's not only the foundation stone, he's the peak stone. He's the cornerstone. I mean, it's just a cool idea. It's not so much the physical analogy. The physical analogy is the peak stone. I think, I don't know, i put words in your mouth. We have a recognition for a cornerstone in today's architecture. Just, it's more, it's symbolic. And I think that's the only reason that I would connect it with uh, the peak stone. 
Yeah. But certainly the analogy is the peak stone, not the cornerstone. Absolutely. Verse 12, uh, we read it and commented a little bit on it. Why is this so uncomfortable today in 2018 in the United States of America? <laughs> Why is verse 12 uh, such an uncomfortable verse in 2018? Because the whole Bible is. Well, the whole Bible is, you're right. And yeah, because of the whole Bible became a problem for the liberals, this is why this verse became more confronting, and this is why they don't want to, they want to take it out. Yeah. Well, well, one of the attacks on Christianity is the exclusivity. This verifies it. And the verse you just quoted, and I can't recall the verse number, but where Christ says, I'm the way. John 14, 6, yeah. Mm-hmm. John 14, 6. Those are Christ's own words. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, how can you not accept that? Unless you believe the Bible mm-hmm. is written by a big old white man. <laughs> and that's not a real, track, you know, an accurate quote from how does the the postmodern pluralistic world in which we live how does that culture approach the idea of salvation of a relationship with God of coming into a relationship with God because other uh, partial cults believe there's other ways to God uh, just a different way the mm-hmm. witness that's part of it but but then they say yeah Jesus Christ but the 144,000 or the seven day of advent nothing to pick on them but there's other ways to get to heaven according to the, our world today it is it is hard it is hard in our culture today uh, I think you know what these words mean which is a very pluralistic very inclusive culture to accept such a dogmatic statement that you see in verse 12. Right. Do you understand what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. And that is, but from, from your perspective and my perspective, we don't embrace a verse like this with pride or arrogance or a dogmatism. We approach it from the perspective, this is God's gracious provision for the human race. Because God has revealed himself in four ways. Through his creation, through the human conscience, through his moral law, and through Jesus. And each one of those insists upon a response. And now, we can go a a lot further with that in terms of thinking about it. But each one of those four revelations has an apologetic for You can defend it. And the idea of being able to defend the exclusive claims of Jesus about himself and about what he accomplished is very unsettling. It's a very unsettling. And that is why it's becoming more and more difficult in some situations to name the name of Christ and not be considered to be a hate-monger, bigoted, narrow-minded. It's just it's very unkind words, and, and we haven't maybe always done a very good job in representing Christ and representing his message. But Peter is saying something 
in, in verse 12 that is at the heart of genuine biblical Christianity. There's only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. Yeah. Isn't Christianity is all about Jesus? You know, Christianity is Jesus. So oh, absolutely. Christianity yeah. is Jesus. It's, and then when we take the, the very nature of Jesus out, then you are left with absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Because the whole faith, the whole religion, the whole New Testament is based not on works, not on good character, not on good behavior, not of rituals, nothing other than faith in Jesus. So you take that center character of Christianity out, then you completely left with absolutely nothing. And, mm -hmm. and when, you, when, when we say that the culture is inclusive, I think this is a very fake inclusiveness because Islam is all about Muhammad. Uh, Mormonism is about Smith, you know, Joseph. Um, every other religion is very inclusive in their beliefs and they are not willing to give that belief out. And except the Christianity, they want us to give Jesus, which is give us everything. I think that's right. I just finished a book uh, written by a Muslim convert. Title is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I, it is it is worthwhile reading. But among other things, in the uh, second edition of the book, they have a number of apologetic. Lee Strobel will help this guy write the book, but are a series of appendices of the book uh, that just defend all the major propositions of biblical Christianity as opposed to Islam. And it's I mean it's very very well done. But I love that title, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I mean, that's, that's ultimately, and I, Mark said it correctly, Christianity is G, about Jesus and nothing else. Christianity is not an ethical system. Now, it becomes an ethical system, but that's not what it is. And that's why, you know, C.S. Lewis used to say, he said this in his book, Mere Christianity, every human being must come to terms with the claims of Christ because he's either a lunatic, a madman, or he's, he's some kind of really strange, weird piece person, or he is who he claims to be. So investigate those claims. Investigate everything that he claims and everything that he did. And that's one of the values of that book I just mentioned, because they're doing it from a, the perspective of trying to reach a Muslim. But consider the claims of Jesus. And consider how to look at your holy book versus the Bible. And whether you, I mean, it's really, it's just so well done. It's for the thinking person who's thinking through all of the different issues of the worldviews of Islam versus Christianity. But um, in, in all the years of my ministry, I've often just said to people who are really pushing back, all I'm asking you to do is just consider the claims of Jesus, and consider who he is and what he did. He changed history. Well, yeah, I mean, we, you and I say that, but for the person who's outside of the faith, it's just, you know, but, they push back, and, but it's to gently and lovingly present these claims to them. I mean, I've had many people over the years, they don't, I don't want to trust the Bible's account of things, okay? Let's compare the Bible as a book coming out of the ancient world 
with every other book coming out of the ancient world. Are you willing to take the time to investigate that? Because when you investigate it from that perspective, the trustworthiness of that book coming out of the ancient world is not matched by any other book. You know that one book, uh, Search for Jesus Christ, that was done by, well, it's a newspaper man, wasn't it? That he was, Lee Strobel, he was at Lee The Case for Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that brings up... Exactly, exactly. He was an attorney, if I'm correct. No, he was a newspaper man, newspaper, I think, actually. Okay. But he, I mean, oh, right. years ago in the very early, it may even been the late 19th century, but I think it was early, whatever, a British uh, attorney was going to write a book to disprove every facet of biblical Christianity. And I mean, he spent a couple of years, and he ended up embracing Christ and wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? Which is his account of how he came to faith in Christ by evaluating all of his claims and all the evidence and everything. And see that, and that's what Strobel does in his book, Case for Christ. If you are intellectually honest and you want to examine objectively the evidence, it's there, but it takes time. Yeah, it took a while to do that. And it he did. And he discussed with professors. That's right. That's right. But it, yeah, but it just, it, but it takes time, um, of course, anyway. But yeah. 2018 yeah. indicates A.D. That's 2018. What was that again? The year 2018. Yeah. It comes from, that's when Christ was born. Correct? B.C.? A.D.? Uh, well, Jesus was born about 4 B.C. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what would be a good book? You talked about just now um, somebody who just proved Jesus as being Savior, yet it changed him. What would be, in your opinion, one of the better books to give somebody who does not? Well, the, the one that Woody just referred to, it, it's fairly recent, very, it's very, you know, very contemporary, it's Lee Strobel, S-T-R-O-B-E-L, The Case for Christ. And it's, it's really his autobiographical account as well as, I mean, he was a, he's a newspaper writer, so he writes well. An older book is the one I mentioned a, a while ago, uh, Who Moved the Stone? Um, another one that I, I used to use is Josh McDowell's uh, More Than a Carpenter. I mean, they're just, you know, More Than a Carpenter is a thin little book where Strobel's a little bit bigger. But it's just, it, it, the, the value of books like this are, every one of them are people who start with a skepticism and sometimes out to prove everything about Christianity is right, and they end up embracing it. <laughs> yeah, this guy, this guy was, uh, uh, his wife had found Christianity, and he couldn't follow it. He just couldn't follow it. So he went around all over the world to disprove it by talking, uh, seeing ancient scriptures and whatever, and, and he could not do it, and he, and he does accept Christ. Who's the author of that, but who moved the stone? I don't remember, honestly. I'm sorry, I don't remember. Uh, I mean, Google it, you'll find it right away. I, I don't remember. He's a British uh, attorney and writer. All right, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that, and um, I hope that didn't send all of you over the cliff. And verse 13 through verse 22, let's look at the response now of, of these leaders. 
there's, it's really a threefold response. Look at it with me. Verse 13. Now when they saw, I love this word, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. That's a, that's a great sentence. The boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. Now don't stumble over, I read from the ESV translation, the term uneducated, that, that, that sounds pejorative. Oh, I shouldn't use that word. You know what pejorative means? That sounds demeaning. What, no, what it means, the Greek term, what it means is these guys were not formally educated. That's what it means. All of the people in that room, the, the, the chief priests and, and the elders, and, and so these were all formally educated in the rabbinic schools. Well, these guys from Galilee weren't, but that doesn't mean they were, they were illiterate. Peter knew three languages. Peter's writings, if you read First and Second Peter, are some of the most polished Greek in the New Testament. Because they were in a business, and uh, in, in, in Peter and, and Andrew, they were in a business, the fishing business, where they're in contact with, with people from all over the ancient world as they're doing their business. So all, they're, they're saying, well, how can these guys talk like that? They didn't go to our rabbinic schools. That's, that's what they're saying. And they recognized, I just find this astonishing, that they'd been with Jesus. Because they're saying the same things he did. They didn't make this up. They're saying the same thing he did. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, this is the second response. They had nothing to say in opposition. Isn't that a great sentence? <laughs> They're seeing this guy that's hanging on to Peter and John who had been almost all of his life a cripple. Now he's running around, leaping and praising God, and they, they don't have anything to say because they can't deny it happened. They can't deny a miracle so the best thing for them to do is shut up. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? Isn't that great? What are we going to do with these guys? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read something, it begs a question. The question is, well, then why didn't you just embrace Jesus? Because the evidence is so compelling and so overwhelming. But they say, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, meaning they brought them back into the, to the chamber and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, they are idiots if they think Peter and John are not going to continue talking about Jesus. These leaders of first century Judaism are in damage control. They've messed it up. They've blown it. They don't know what to do. That a miracle has occurred is incontrovertible. They can't explain it. And they heard Peter respond and give a masterful response. So... The only thing we can do is get him to shut up. Verse 19. 
But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. But the people, for all who were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And that little phrase that, that is used there by Luke, this sign of healing, that, that word sign there um, is used in various parts of the New Testament, a sign pointing to Jesus. It's a messianic miracle, a messianic sign. So it's a, it's a powerful demonstration. Let me make sure you understand these words I'm about to utter. This miracle happening on Temple Mount and everything that followed it is a powerful focus on the messianic signs proving Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. That's what the intent of this is to do. And it worked. Huge numbers of people see the evidence, but you still see, in, in contrast, the Jewish leadership of the first century is still rejecting Jesus, aren't they? They're still rejecting him. Yeah. They will not accept the, the truth of who he is, despite the evidence. You said they don't know what to do. I think it was very simple for them that they just want to ask Jesus for food. Oh, heavens, absolutely. And, 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 and they have seen the signs. They have seen the argument. They know that the argument cannot refute and still trying to find a way to shut it up. Isn't that crazy? Like, why is that? Right. Like when we are talking about how to reach out to others, when you are confronting with somebody who has seen somebody has been healed by Jesus, I don't think there's any book that can can stand for that kind of argument. Why do people do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I can answer that question exactly, but the well, it's it's the work um, when people reject Jesus and the evidence that points to Jesus and who he is and what he's done. The reasons for that are multiple and there are lots of layers. You could argue Satan blinding their eyes. You can argue their own stubborn pride and arrogance, refusing to accept the evidence that's so clearly there. Because, uh, I mean, I there's a, there's a man that I've known for years, for quite a long time. He came to my early morning Bible study at 6.30, um, He's at the Med Center, brilliant guy. He'd come, he'd ask all kinds of questions. So many times he would say, nope, I'm still not going to accept it. I'm still not going to accept the Jews. And what I want to do is I want to throw him up against the wall and punch him. I mean, it's like, the only reason I say that, please, don't, I'm trying to be funny there, but because this man understands the evidence, understands it, understands it's compelling, but as an act of his will, he will not do it. I told you, I think I've told you, there's a lady I've known, she and her husband went to Israel with me twice, and he was, he absolutely would not trust Christ. He still went to Israel. He heard all, he saw all the places, just wouldn't do it. He absolutely wouldn't do it. And Harriet was just, you know, beside herself. 
he was diagnosed with cancer. He was in a wheelchair. He was very, very sick. And one morning, he wheeled his way into the, into the kitchen and said, Harriet, tears streaming down his eyes, his face, Harriet, I just gave up. I just trusted Christ. And by 3 a.m. the next morning, he had died. And she, she was just rejoicing in that, in the sense that, I mean, that was the right way, that was the right thing for him to say. Yeah. I finally gave up. Because he knew the evidence, he knew the argument, he knew everything, he saw how to change his wife, but he wouldn't do it. He would not do it. So, Mark, all of those things are a part of an explanation like that. I mean, the arrogance of, of human beings in saying, I don't need God. I, I do not need Jesus. I don't, no matter what you say, I understand the evidence, I understand what the words are saying, I don't need him. And it's just, it is, that's why I love what, what Chuck said that before he died, uh, I give up. Isn't it really, really, as the apostles and, and Paul, it's, it's our job to spread the word. Yeah. And if, so you throw the seeds on the ground. What happens after that is out of your control. That's right. And it's up to the Holy Spirit to That's remove right. this person if they're going to be moved. And, and who knows how long it's going to take. It's, uh, right. um, so you just, you know, Profess the truth, um, and when all else fails, you use words. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and, uh, and the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest of it. When I was ordained many, many, many years ago, my mentor in Pennsylvania, I think I've told you this, one of the things he said to me was, Jim, it's not your job to change people. And that was the most important thing he said to me. It really was, because that is really true. That is not your job. And Fred's right. You... You present, if you have the opportunity, you present the case for Jesus, but the results are up to the Lord. I stand a man who really influenced me in many ways, but he, he prayed for his father. He came to Christ when he was a teenager. He prayed for his father for 40 years. And near the end of his life, his dad came to the Lord. And uh, it was it just those, sometimes you say, well, it's, why is this taking so long? It's, um, I don't think we can put it in human terms other than, as one or two of you already said, it is the work of the Spirit of God in a person's heart. The other thing a missionary told me once was uh, God saves souls, but there's certain personalities. <laughs> that is true. I want you to notice, uh, we've got about oh, 20 minutes or 25 minutes. I want you to notice how Luke ends this. He gives us an account of what Peter and John do next, and it's a prayer. When they were released, would mean Peter and John were released, they went to their friends. We, we assume this means that larger group that we studied about earlier in the book and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to him. And when they heard it, meaning this larger group, they lifted their voices together to God. And now we have a prayer. This is, a, this is, I don't know if we're going to be able to get through this, but I'd really like to try to get through this. This is one of the more remarkable prayers of Scripture. 
because as Luke records this prayer, you have them referring to and quoting from an Old Testament psalm, specifically Psalm 2, and applying it to what just happened. So I'm going to read the whole prayer, which goes on through verse 31. Then we'll go back and take it apart. What's the verse you start with? Uh, right in the middle of verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and now they quote from Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And anointed in Hebrew is Messiah, or in Greek is Christos. So against the Lord and his Christ. For truly in this city, <clears throat> meaning Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, this is, it is a remarkable prayer. They address God, going back to the middle of verse 24, as sovereign Lord, but sovereign Lord, and there are, there are two May I use multiple? Yes. They address him as sovereign Lord, but he is sovereign Lord for two reasons, and they cite those. One, he's the creator. And two, he superintends historical events. Now, you all know, at least I think you do, you all know what sovereign means. If someone's sovereign, it means they not only reign in whatever authority or position they have, but they rule. So God is the sovereign ruler of the universe because he created everything and he superintends. That's a term I'm choosing to use, but I like that term. He superintends the events of history to accomplish his purposes. And so what they do is, and again, notice, because you can see it very clearly in their prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it. That's his creator. Why is he sovereign? Why does he have the right to claim sovereignty over his world? Because he created it. With creation goes sovereignty. And so it's, just, it's, it's a remarkable reminder of so much of the Old Testament. 
God is sovereign, first of all, because he created everything. And he has a right to rule over his world. And anyone that challenges that rule is challenging the creator and Lord of the universe. Uh, I think you've heard me say, once, once Genesis 3, which is where Adam and Eve sinned, we have to call the fall, immediately, now the question of history is this. Who has the right to rule? The devil. Well, I mean, that's the question of history. Who has the right to rule? And there are only two answers. Either the Lord God who created everything or the chief rebel who is Satan. That Satan is challenging God's right to rule. And that cosmic battle is being worked out on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Because the question of Genesis 3 is... Will the human race created in the image of God join in the rebellion or won't they? And what happened? They joined in the rebellion. And I'm saying all that because what, what these people are praying is they're addressing the Lord as sovereign because he's the creator. And second, who through the mouth of David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, it's a wonderful claim of inspiration there, but quoting Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite psalms. I've preached on it many times because it lays out an amazing worldview centered in these propositions. And it's, can I tell you the, the background story about it? Sure. Psalm 2, is, it's called a coronation psalm, presumably written by David because Peter quotes here and said David wrote it. He's about to be coronated as the king, but it's messianic because it clearly applies then to his greater son, who will be Jesus the Christ. And so David looks at this world and says, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plotting, imagining a vain thing. It's kind of like he's looking at his world and saying, the way you and I might put it, why are things in such a mess? I mean, they really are. They're in a mess. The kings of the earth set themselves together. The rulers gathered together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. So what's that language? That's the language of rebellion. They're gathering against. They're plotting against him. So in their prayer... They then say, for truly in, in verse 27, truly in this city, they were gathered together, the same language that's in verse 26, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, still verse 26, to whatever your hand, your plan predestined to take place. There's God superintending the events of history. Was it God's will, was it the Father's will that his son be crucified at the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and the Roman Empire? Yes. Yes. So they're saying, Lord, 
Psalm 2 that was used by King David that you inspired through the Holy Spirit, exactly what happened is King David's life is what we see happening here. They were gathered against, against your anointed to accomplish your plan. Now that's hard for some people. And listen. Yeah. And we've done this many times too, but the railroad track. This passage, which we just quoted, is focusing on the divine sovereignty of God. Words like your plan, predestined. But don't forget the other side of the railroad track is human responsibility. And there is the tension you and I always feel. Is God superintending the events of history? Yes, that's what they just said. But does that mean that human beings are robots and automatons just carrying out? No, that's not what it means. And you know, the, so many other parts of the Bible show us that. But they're just zeroing right here. This is what they're zeroing in on. God, what happened to Jesus was a part of your plan because you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we believe that. So, Lord, because that's true, verse 28, here's their prayer. Here's their prayer. Look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. That's their prayer. They told us to shut up. They told us to stop talking about Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, we know that is not what you want us to do. But because you are the... Well, the other sheep, but because you are the sovereign Lord of history, you're the creator who has every right to sovereignty. We're asking you, Lord, for boldness to continue to do what you want us to do. That's not a selfish prayer, is it? That's not a self-aggrandizing prayer. Lord, give us the boldness and courage to do what you want us to do, which is proclaim the name of Jesus. Isn't that somewhat of, of uh, how we as parents uh, raise our own children? That we have uh, a direction, and we have a meaning, and we have a purpose to do that which is good, to give them every opportunity to be, as, as spiritual parents, what God would like them to be, but ultimately how they react to that direction is totally up to them. <clears throat> Ultimately up to them, I guess, is perhaps the best way. But they have to really... They have to make that decision. And they're accountable for that decision. But it's our responsibility to raise them in the Paul's language, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We can't coerce our kids. We can't friends, relatives, people we care about. They have to make that decision. That's right. Christ's death really was part of the plan and the predestined in that Satan, before Satan 
after in, in the garden and there was, there was no death. And with his action, death came in and God, to demonstrate that death had no, that death had no power over him, sent Christ who died and was raised and to, to refute Satan's power of death. I mean, take away that power and authority and threat and punishment and judgment and wrath and threat, all of that. And demonstrate to the people that, mm -hmm. you know, that he is still the sovereign person. And there's no other way God could do that. You can't do it. I can't do it because I've got the same problem you do. And if I die, it takes care of mine, but nobody else's. <laughs> Whereas Jesus was perfect and righteous. The God man. That's the whole point of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The Father accepted that sacrifice, proof he raised him from the dead. Now, it isn't only the cross, it's the cross and the resurrection. Is it in this prayer as well that Peter uh, and Paul are making the argument for the Jewish leaders to be forgiven and not feeling guilty of turning Jesus in? Well, uh, yes, I, I, yes. I mean, it, I don't think that's the whole and major intent of this prayer, but the, it is an important. Uh, can I use the word corollary to the prayer? Uh, that's absolutely correct. That's right. Giving them a, a door or open door that if you accept Jesus, then you'll be forgiven. That's right. I mean, the people. Whom, in these chapters, remember Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they're still in Jerusalem. These are only a couple months after Jesus went back to the Father. We're not that far from that. And so, I mean, they're speaking to Jews, and they, their whole point is Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Look at the evidence. Look what he did. Compare it with all the Old Testament text and believe. And thousands and thousands and thousands did. But many did not. So this, this is basically... For the, for the ruling powers, a dope slam saying, look. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, the evidence, and it's it's presented, the evidence for Jesus and who he is and what he did, et cetera, is overwhelming. So respond. And many did. <clears throat> it seems like, you know, when we read through Genesis and Exodus, and, and there were so many miracles that happened during that time, and it, and it just continues on. And, and God has allowed many things to happen uh, to prove of, of His what His power. Yeah, his character, His power, and who He is. That's right. Yeah, He give examples of miracles all the way through Genesis and and Exodus, and and even. What we're saying here, this is still his miracles happening mm -hmm. here. It's mm -hmm. like he's a, he, allowing his son to be born and sending his son and That's right. allowing him to be crucified and then having him rise within three days. And That's right. Those are all miracles convincing believer, people to be believers. That's right. you know? Here's the evidence. Here's what's happened. And he's given Jesus the ability to make the miracles also and then the disciples. Also and it, well, and as it says, under and with the power of the Holy Spirit, because it says again there at the end of the, the passage, uh, verse 31, 
and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That filled with the Holy Spirit is a very important New Testament principle. Be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be under his control. And that's, that's what's going on here. So does God answer the prayer? Yeah, verse 31, he answers the prayer. The place shakes, they're filled with the Spirit, and they continue to speak with boldness. So God answers the prayer. But it's a majestic prayer, at least that's a word I'd like to use. It's a majestic prayer because it's tying a very important set of Old Testament teachings into the proof that God is sovereign. And because you're sovereign, Lord, we're asking you to keep on doing what you've done and give us the boldness to speak the truth. Because they were just ordered to shut up. And the threat is if they don't shut up, that next time may not just be, you know, be put before the Sanhedrin. They may be thrown in prison, killed. Yeah. I mean, that's that's hanging over them. But they're saying, regardless, give us boldness, and the Lord answers that prayer. All right? Any questions about this? Because there's a little summary in verse 32, which Luke does periodically through the book, but we'll... Well, you, you, you know, you, again, to emphasize the point you made earlier that the, the leaders of Israel are looking at 4,000 plus years of tradition. Exactly. And they're having to wrestle with it. <laughs> they, they just have a hard time getting yeah. their heads around it. They really are. They don't get their heads around it. Many of them don't. You're right. I mean, it's very interesting that they're not praying for safety and protection and provide for us for our mission. They just praying that can you just let us continue preaching? Yeah, and boldness to do it. Yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. Continue to yeah, that's a that's a good observation, Mark, because they they are not praying for protection and safety and guard us and so give us boldness in light of as I mentioned a moment in light of this may be life threatening. It could be we're going to end up in prison, which is what's going to happen in this little bit. But so I mean, it's the kind of uh, It's the kind of prayer that's hard sometimes for you and me to pray. I don't want boldness. I want, just protect me. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Any other questions? I'm so thankful we got this done. Now, what I want to do, and I think we can do this. It won't take very long. But verse 32 through 37, Luke, like, steps back. He'll do this periodically throughout the book. He'll step back and say, okay, I want to give you a summary of what's happening to the church. Because remember, God is building his church. Jesus said the gates of hell never prevail against it, Matthew 16. And so here, Luke is stepping back, okay, what's happening to the Jerusalem church? If you remember the numbers, we've gone from 12 to almost 10,000. You have the original, because then Judas was replaced by Matthias. Then you have 120. Then on Pentecost, you have how many added? 3,000. And then the next message that Peter preaches, 5,000 men. So you do the math, the church is now over 10,000 in Jerusalem. So what's going on? Because they're house churches, they're meeting, you know, they don't have a big building or anything like that. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, what does that mean? 
One heart and one soul. I mean, that, they're metaphors. They're figures of speech. What, what's the word that he's just summarizing? Unity. There's unity. This is a unified group. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Now, this is not Christian socialism. All it's telling is you've got to remember something. These people who are in this church, many of these people, it has cost them. Because we learned that they're baptized. I mean, it's a very public event in the mikvotes of Jerusalem all around Temple Mount. It's a very public event. So what happened to some? Do you think some of them were disowned by their family? Do you think some of them lost their jobs? Absolutely. Yeah. See, the, the, the issue here in verse 32 is this is how they're meeting the human needs because many of them, many of them lost their economic security. And so now things are shared to meet needs. In verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And with great grace was upon them all. The word great, great power and great grace, the Greek word is mega. You've heard of that. We bring that into English. Everything's mega today. So it's, it's just mega power and mega grace. <laughs> but there's not... A needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands and houses, which based on what we know about Jerusalem in the first century, that's about 10% of the population. Many who were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each as any need. Again, this is not Christian communism or Christian socialism. This is how they're meeting the needs. And people who had means, property, are willing to sell it. And then, verse 36, Luke chooses to cite one individual. Then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, Barnabas is his Hebrew name, son of encouragement, that's what that means, a Levite, he's of that tribe, a native of Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we're going to come across Barnabas. This is one of Luke's walk-ons. He does this a lot. He'll walk somebody onto the narrative, and then you won't talk about him for another couple chapters. But Barnabas is going to become a very key leader of the church. But he's one of the guys. He was wealthy. He sold a little piece of land and gave the proceeds to the apostles. Now this is setting us up for chapter 5 where you have two individuals, a husband and wife, Annas, Ananias, and Sapphira. And if you want to understand and find out the contrast between Barnabas and these two folks, you got to come back next week. Yes. We covered a lot today, but we honestly we got exactly where I wanted to finish. Almost think God had something to do with it because even I'm writing all over the board and everything. But thank you. It was really good. We 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 covered a lot of important material. So next week, I know some of you read chapter head, chapter five. We will spend our time. It's a great passage, but it focuses on the contrast. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it is powerful. 
just like a two-edged sword. We thank you that it does nurture us and train us in righteousness and sound doctrine. Thank you for these men who are willing to take uh, an hour out of a busy, busy Wednesday and study together. I thank you for each one of them. There are many I know that aren't here. Some are traveling. Uh, I think uh, Woody mentioned Lyle is not feeling well. We pray for him today and just uh, commit each one to you. Thank you that as we take away from our study this, uh, this afternoon now, just the importance of you are the sovereign Lord because you created all things and you superintend all of the events of history to accomplish your purposes. Thank you that you're that kind of God because if you are the sovereign Lord, that means I can trust you. And so we thank you for that grand truth. So dismiss us now with your blessing. Take care of us as we go our separate ways. Enable us to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.